Welcome to Welcome to Primetime, a show covering the Freddy Krueger hosted anthology series Freddy's Nightmares one episode at a time. I'm Brennan Klein. Every episode is brought to you by donations from listeners like you. You get one new episode for every donation. Please help us keep going by giving to The Okra Project, an organization that is working to feed black trans people in need. You can find out how to donate in the show notes. Uh, this week's patron is Mook, who is uh, one of the best people out there on the tw- on the Tweetosphere. And this week's guest, he is the co-host of the Horror Queers podcast, as well as the young adult literature podcast, Hazel, Katniss, and Harry, and St- are there Anne's in between or not? Hazel there and Katniss are- and Harry and Star, right? Yeah, there are Anne's in between. I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to pronounce them. <laughs> yes, it's Joe Lipset. Welcome, Joe. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for having me. You're so very welcome. Um, so you know what? I know you didn't super want to, but why don't you tell our listeners a tiny bit about both of your shows that you have? Okay. You're just so humble. <laughs> uh, I It sometimes just becomes a big deal when people come out and they're like, I've got 18 things to plug. And you're like, get to the episode already. So I'll make it very quick. Yeah. Uh, Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star is a young adult literature podcast where we read a book and then we look at the film adaptation and we compare and contrast And then Horror Queers is where we look at horror through a queer lens, or we bring the queer to a regular horror film. And they're both lots of fun. Yes, I've been on both, so I can agree with that. This is true. Yeah, we're we're very incestuous. We like to appear in each other's work. Look, that's how the podcasting community grows. It's how we ever get guests. It's true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the episode I have brought Joe on to talk with us today is season one, episode 15 of Freddy's Nightmares, titled School Days, D-A-Z-E, of course. Um, (laughs) How could it not be? The original air date was February 12th, 1989. Here's what you could have watched in theaters instead that weekend. You could have watched Joel Schumacher's Cousins, which is apparently a remake of like a French sex comedy that I was not aware of. Um, no. Or you could have watched The Fly 2, which is probably the one I would have chosen that weekend. Right, yeah. I mean, it's a case of not great options, but that would have been my birthday weekend. So I oh. guess, I mean, I would have been seven. So I don't know that I would have been seeing The Fly 2. <laughs> probably also not Cousins, which I think is about two cousins who pretend they're in a sexual relationship. Oh, oh that does sound very French, doesn't it? It really does. And very Joel Schumacher. Mm, um, yeah, not untrue. So the writer of this episode is David Ehrman. He's a TV writer. He's done a lot of stuff, including Queen of the South, which is uh, co-created by Mark Fortin, who uh, was a, a former co-host of Attack of the Queer Wolf. So connections. Uh, I'm two degrees away from this person. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you wrote this episode, Brennan. Oh, I, 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 I don't need that credit. Um <laughs> And, oh, another person I almost have a connection with, the director is Michael Klein, no relation. Mm. Um, He hasn't done a lot, but he did direct two episodes of the TV series 9 to 5, which I did not know existed, but apparently ran for five seasons. Oh, wow. No, I had no idea. Like, we are talking about a TV adaptation of the film, right? Yes, we are. Wow. I'm really curious now. Yeah, I... I had no idea and it it has dozens of episodes and i'm like all right i guess you know you do you the 80s <laughs> right like is uh, the boss just kidnapped for five seasons i have questions yeah i mean maybe they kidnap him and maybe every episode is one of those uh like fantasies they have of what they do with him once he's kidnapped in that <laughs> sequence that i find kind of irritating in the movie <laughs> yeah fair it's not the strongest part of that film 
and, and not that the individual fantasies are fine, but I personally I have a problem with like fantasy sequences in a narrative movie that aren't like driving the plot along. And then when there's three of them in a row, I'm like, all right, can we can we move it? Wow, um, this is very telling considering the project that you're literally recapping right now. I know. See, look, this is just really kind of emphasizing that part of my interests. Um, yes, yeah, so the cast we have here as Matt, we have Billy Morissette. I looked it up. No apparent relation to Alanis Morissette, um, but he was married to Maura Tierney for a couple of years, and yeah. he, he was also in Ghoulies Go to College. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> but yeah. And as Steve, we have Andrew Krauss. Um, his only other credit is on the soundtrack to a movie called The Experts. And let me read you this plot. Okay. To- Two New York guys get jobs starting a nightclub in small town USA. They don't know it's a spy training model town in the USSR. That is not where I thought that was going to go. No. And how did they not notice that they flew to Russia, apparently? Oh, it's like an early version of The Hunt. Yeah, I guess, except they're DJs. (laughs) Yeah. No battle royale necessary. Uh, Apparently not. Although, that honestly... Is that in the 80s as well? Battle Royale? No. <laughs> the one oh. that you're, the movie you're talking about. Oh, oh, let me double check um, The Experts. I thought, yeah, I definitely lost the plot. Oh, yeah, 89. Okay, yeah, because that also sounds like a very 80s-esque plot. Like, we're still concerned about the Cold War, but we're also going to make it a musician comedy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's we, you know, we've distanced enough to make it wacky. Yeah, because really at that point in the late 80s, the Cold War was winding down. So I think people were starting to say like, oh, can we poke fun at this yet? Maybe, gently. Yeah, and it was pre-internet, so it didn't have the kind of North Korea, the interview backlash, apparently. Right. There were no protests about the experts. Maybe there should have been. Who knows? We'll have to find out. I'm curious about all of these other projects. In fact, I'd rather talk about them than the episode in question. But we have to, Joe. It is our oh. sacred duty. So let's get started. And right. as as always, um, feel free to interrupt me anytime. I'm going to run through the bare bones of the plot. If I miss something, if there's something you want to comment on, jump in. I don't give a shit. Right. Um, I'll try not to be a squeaky wheel. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, I just explicitly asked you to. So thanks for not <laughs> applying the prompt. Um, so uh, we open on... A little kid, not a kid, a teenager named Steve. He's in a limo full of ladies. He's hanging out with his dad. They apparently earned a fortune selling a nasal decongestant. Uh, it brought about world peace. Yeah. And so obviously this is a fantasy sequence. But what really struck me about this scene is that it looks like one of the sets from the original original Lord of the Rings movies. Like it seems like it's forced perspective because the woman sitting next to his dad looks like a giant. Like she looks like she's crammed into the limo and the dad is like three feet lower than her in the limo. And I, it was, it was fascinating to see. Yeah. I'm not convinced that they shot this inside an actual limo. Like they maybe rented it by the hour, got the exterior footage that they needed and then recreated it in a very cramped soundstage. Yeah. Or maybe inside of a a vent of some kind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a mystery. Um, but this kid, uh, Steve, he has like Duran Duran hair and a Seinfeld puffy shirt and 
he thinks he's Christian Slater from Heathers. Like, he's like, I am, you know, the oddball. I'm the outsider. Look at me. I'm so cool. I read Camus. Mm-hmm. He's got the trench coat before it was popular and then banned, as well as sunglasses during the day. This kid is cool. He is bad news, Joe. <laughs> anyway, so as happens in all woodshop classes, his woodshop teacher lines up all the students' projects, looks at them briefly, and just announces a grade in front of the whole class. Mm-hmm. Seemingly so, taking no time to actually, you know, critically look at the work. He he just eyeballs it. Yeah, F, A, B. From a couple feet away. Um, and look, Steve makes it pretty easy on him because he does not make a table, which was the assignment. He makes some sort of horrible art piece, which again, I look, art is subjective, but I would have given him an F because it's really terrible to look at. It, it looks like he maybe glue gunned some scrap metal together and he's very glib about it, which I kind of appreciate because I like a bit of an asshole. And yet, I mean, you've got to at least give them something to work with, like unless you want to fail the class purposely. Yeah, which he is. He's like, well, look, um, if everyone makes tables, we need something to put on them. This is art. And uh, it it's not. Look, it's D-plus art at best. It wouldn't make mm-hmm. it into the modern museums. No, absolutely um, not. Like, not even the ones where you could just, like, spit onto a ketchup packet and put it in a little glass case, and that's art. No, because there's very clearly no thesis behind the work. It's like, I made this as a fuck you. And it's like, oh, that's more performance art. <laughs> that's very true yeah uh take it down the street to the theaters exactly um oh by the way i don't know if it's the way that this particular episode was uploaded to the interwebs or what's going on but the sound mixing is atrocious in this Can't episode hear shit i replayed all the freddy sequences about a billion times to try to like burn my eardrums off and i was like is he saying spare the child spoil the blade what yeah, it's it's really unclear, and this has never been a problem with any of these other episodes. I mean, obviously, seeing things is somewhat of a problem because of the VHS rip quality mm-hmm. that we're getting. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't get it. And like, and it seems to be a mixing problem because the like the soundtrack is always louder than the dialogue. Like in this scene of the woodshop when he's doing the grades, we're hearing all the like hammering and sawing and clattering, which shouldn't be happening because everyone's finished with their projects. But whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just drowning out everything. Yeah, it's very, very hard to hear. And it's problematic because this is not an action-heavy episode. I mean, I don't know if any of these episodes are action-heavy. <laughs> More than this one. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of talking in this one. And sometimes the dialogue is questionably important. I Usually, typically in, you know, narrative fiction, it is. So, but... <laughs> I'm well, just well, saying, I'm trying to give some leeway to the two episodes that I've seen at this show. Neither one of them really blew me out of the water with the writing. No, look, the, really, the, we're towards the back half of the season now, and it's really hit a slump, which is saying something, because it started in a slump. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so he gets an F in Woodshop. The teacher makes a snide comment about him going to summer school for Woodshop, I guess. I guess, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we pan to a wooden Freddy head, and he may or may not say, spare the blade, spoil the child. (laughs) Who knows? Word is out. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he does say, you know what I always say. And I was like, "Uh, Freddy, I protest. I do not believe you have ever said, spare the child, spoil the blade. 
Yeah, because first of all, it doesn't make sense. And second of yeah. all, yeah, like we've spent a lot of time with Freddy Krueger at this point. Like I think even uh, El- the Elm Street 5 had maybe just come out or was about to come out. Yeah. So, you know, the the hours we've spent with Freddy are many, and he has literally never said this. Like we have a pretty good like subsection of his behavior already. <laughs> Yeah, like Malachi from Children of the Corn called and wants his tagline back. <laughs> but he would say it in a much cooler skater voice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so Steve is called to the principal's office. He talks to the secretary for some reason about Hester Prynne being the first American feminist. Uh, nowhere. Yeah, Joe, can you speak to this having done an episode on the Scarlet Letter? <laughs> I'd rather not. But she kind of is because she's a badass bitch, but... Uh... I don't know if I'd call her a feminist because basically she keeps her mouth shut to protect a man. And I don't know how feminist I would consider that. Yeah, I I feel that. Um, Okay, so here's where my notes get really confusing to parse through. Um, He gets called in the principal's office in a dream because he falls asleep waiting because these kids just aren't, they're not getting the circadian rhythms right. They're constantly falling asleep. Yeah, Um, during the day at school. (laughs) It's a wonder they're not all failing. It's tough. It's a tough time to be a teenager. Your hormones are going crazy. You're, you know, <laughs> sleeping where you can. Yeah. Um, yeah, so his dad's in the principal's office. There's a whole thing about, like, being punished, and he doesn't know what he's being punished for, but it's being punished for being different. So he yes. escapes into an alley of some kind mm-hmm. um, in Springwood's ever-bustling downtown district full of, you know, garbage can fires and horrible crime. <laughs> Yes, he runs very, very badly and strangely, and he's trying to avoid a school bus that is apparently stalking him. Yeah, I my probably my favorite image of the episode is the school bus with the kind of search beacon on it, which was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of using an instrument that's very familiar to us as like also a stand-in for like a police unit. It's a little unnerving. Yeah, maybe the only part of this episode that is. Um, but yeah, so he's trying to run away from kind of the embodiment of school and society and whatnot. He gets pulled aside into this alley by these kind of like Mad Max 3 group of kids yeah. um, who sleep in bunks in some sort of abandoned sheet metal warehouse that, you know, all Ohio towns have. Yeah, can we talk about the weird geography of this? Because it looks like he gets pulled into, like, he gets pulled through a door, and it's obviously to a completely different set. Uh But it looks like they're still outside, and they're burning trash in an open fire. But it's also meant to actually have a roof, because they're sleeping there. And all I could think of was, that's like running a car. Like, you're going to die of carbon monoxide poisoning. That's a really good point. I mean... (laughs) maybe they are dead maybe that's maybe they're ghosts their their whole situation doesn't make sense because they're all the they're all the misfits who have been cast out of society they're like alex over there he's greek and i'm left-handed so i mean what like why are we so cruel to greek people are they just automatically outcasts who have to live on the street well you need to understand this was the 80s which was the height of the popularity of the phrase it's all greek to me oh, nobody God. could understand alex <laughs> it's his tragedy it's um, true. anyway so they have their principal tied up and they're like in order to join us you have to shoot him and he's like uh no thank you yeah it's very confusing it's like they want him to prove that he's an outcast like them by obeying their rules 
It's that, like, that's actually conformity. Well, honestly, isn't nonconformity conformity in the way that it's packaged? Like, people are buying all those stickers that say obey, or everyone's mm-hmm. getting the same, like, punk haircut. Like, true nonconformity is just being yourself, Joe. You, you had the power less. within you all along. I mean, I won't lie. I was incredibly confused by the moral messages of both of the stories in this episode. Like, I could not figure out exactly what I was meant to walk away with. Yeah, it it, it, it is very ill thought through, this show. Like, they threw out an idea of, like, I think most of the episodes are like, all right, what's something that a teenager in a small town would have to deal with? Let's make it make no sense. <laughs> More or less. And then call it dream logic because you never really know when they're sleeping and when they're awake. Ugh, my least favorite thing of this show. Um, but yeah, they so, do it really badly, too. Like, it's, yeah. It's not clever. That's the problem. Yeah, because the thing is, obviously, I love three or four of the Elm Street movies, mm-hmm. like, unconditionally. And the best ones are the ones that do really play in the line between dream and reality, but they're the ones that are aware of what they're doing and have a thesis behind what they're doing yes um this one is kind of like let's pick a couple of cool images and then string it together with some nonsensical shit and say it's a dream uh uh, it's (laughs) it's the same thing of like you know kind of experimental films where it's like did did this person have an idea or are they just trying to impress us with a bunch of opaque nonsense are you talking about david lynch i am talking about david (laughs) <laughs> because um, now I'm actually thinking, what would a David Lynch episode of Freddy's Nightmares look like? Honestly, it could have happened. It didn't, but it could have. It, it could have, yeah. It would have been interesting, for sure. I mean, prob- still better. Um, but anyway, so he helps the principal escape. There's more of their weird running. It's very Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. Um, but the principal betrays him and packs him onto the bus. He ends up back at school, and there's a line of students standing there all robotically, and his best friend calls him Odd. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that the teachers have this big machine where they put in all the punks and they come out as preppies. <laughs> I kind of loved it. Like, it's so obvious. Like, it's very, very on the nose. But all I, like, in my notes, it just says, like, it's the original Blue Ribbon Kids from Blue... Disturbing Behavior. Oh, yes. I, I re- okay. I mean, my, for me, I am younger than you but i my references tend to go older i was feeling like very stepford wives right vibes i mean yours is actually more appropriate because these people are meant to come out as robots but uh you know mine is cooler and hipper and non-conformist and has james marston very much so yes (laughs) um but yeah so it's it's all stepford students and honestly i don't see the point of them spending that much money to turn all the students into robots because then why do you have to teach them anything they should already know it just put it in their brain chips Hmm. yeah and even like what's the point of having them stand in that row and then like pluck out their eyes because why because they're still perfecting the the robot recipe i guess so um, i will say the imagery of the machine and like the slow pan across and then that one section where you can see the blood running on it I thought was actually cool. Oh yeah, there's these two tubes with pistons, and there's kind of like goop. And at one point, they kind of well, I get, we'll get there, but they pull out his sunglasses out of the tube, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit of robot antics. His best friend's hand comes off. His, I was gonna say girlfriend, but she's actually the best friend's girlfriend, or maybe she's both of their girlfriend. It's unclear. Well, here's the okay. So not to put a pin in all of this, but 
is there any narrative cohesiveness between the first story and the second story traditionally? Because I felt like in both this episode and the episode we'll talk about in the next episode of this podcast, uh-huh. there's like a weird connective tissue, but also it doesn't make sense. Like it recasts them in a different role. And I wasn't sure if we're meant to see it as a through line or is it just like these are similar characters, but they have different interior <sighs> lives. Um, typically, at least when this season started, there was kind of a through line. Like, um, episode two is about a teenager who gets shot at a drive-thru, and then the second part is about his girlfriend who witnessed it and is now in the hospital. Um, okay. So, it, 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 they do tend to kind of zoom in on small characters from the first half of the episode. Mm-hmm. But this one, there, there are ones that seem to have completely retconned, like, 50% of what happened just to tell a completely different thing. Yeah. But... To be fair, that'll happen even in, like, in in one segment between commercial breaks. They'll just retcon, like, two minutes before where they were and just tell a different story. It, it's very inconsistent. Right. Okay. So I shouldn't harp on it too, too much. Oh, you should harp on it. It's just, <laughs> it's just normal for this show. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So in this one, he gets put through the machine. Um, he turns into a preppy, um, yeah. but then he wakes up in the principal's office. He's like, oh, I'll never be bad again. And then he does his woodshop project and gets an A+, and it's very uh, the end of A Christmas Carol for some reason. Very much so. But did you like the fact that they've all produced the ugly art sculptures and his is apparently now just the best? Like, it really made me question, oh, is he just in another dream? Because why would the shop teacher grade them on that identical piece of work? and give him a, a new grade of A. Joe. I'm going too much into this, aren't I? <laughs> I look, I just, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, Stop my, looking for logic, goddammit. My ability to grasp what's going on in these episodes is really slipping. <laughs> That's fair. Um, it's, like you're, it's like you're in a lucid dream now. Yeah, it really is. Um, and yeah, like you said, so, okay, well, we do go, we go back to Freddy's liminal space. He says something, something, school spirit. I literally could not hear it. No, couldn't hear it at all. I tried a couple of times. All I could get is that it looks like he's either holding a doll or a dildo. One of the two. <laughs> Maybe both. Maybe both. Um, but yeah, so the second one is based on his friend, Matt, who's the one whose hand fell off as a robot in the other one. And yeah. again, like Julie seems to have been recast as I was his girlfriend the whole time. Mm-hmm. What? You thought I was dating this other guy just because I spent a bunch of time talking to him? No. Okay. I, I mean, that's fair. I mean, you, you don't date everyone you talk to, but she's, she's definitely positioned as the girlfriend in that kind of, in that level of the cast in this kind of high school thing. That's like what the role you would play. Yeah, and their relation, like the dialogue that they have isn't particularly flirty or relationshipy. So I was like, why wouldn't you have just given Matt those lines? Yeah, it's confusing. Uh, she's really not useful to any of this plot because no. the 80s did not know what to do with women. Nope. Um, anyway, so Matt is feeling a lot of pressures to pass his, a lot of pressure to pass his SATs. Um, Joe, mm-hmm. as a Canadian, do you have the SAT there? We do not. So the only way I know anything about SATs is through American television. Okay, but did did do you, you know, grasp the gist of it, or was oh, it this a yeah. very confusing situation? I grasp the gist of it, but I don't like. It's important that they say it's out of sixteen hundred, because otherwise I wouldn't understand that an eight hundred is a good or a bad score, because eight hundred seems like a ridiculously high score to get on an exam. 
until you find out that, oh, that's half. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> if you're thinking on the, like, 100% scale, you're like, oh, he, he aced it eight times over. Well, and who has exams that are out of hundreds of points? Like, I mean, I'm not all about standardized testing. I think it's kind of garbaggio at the best of times. But the SATs are just stupid to me. Yeah, and it makes... Look, by the point that I was taking the SATs in high school, they had actually upped the total of points because instead of two segments, they made it three segments. Oh, good. Um, and so it was up to 2,400 points. Oh, no. That is nonsense. Yeah, but then a couple years after that, they got rid of the third segment. So, <laughs> so it's back to 16. So honestly, my score seems super extra great because it's, <sighs> it's more than the max. <laughs> You're like a genius. I mean, I basically am. Um, <laughs> take it yeah take it and run yeah anyway so freddie crushes a skull he says some people just can't take the pressure um sure. and then it's we get bad. yeah then we get a lot of scenes of matt getting the pressure julie talks about wanting to be the ideal dink couple like double mm -hmm. income no kids i um, was like oh wow they were talking about dinks back in the late 80s good for them yeah i was like i didn't know straight people were also dinks <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of think it's an exclusively queer term, don't you? I really do, but maybe that's just from my perspective. Sure. How many straight people do we talk to on average? Almost none. These people? They're like unicorns. You yeah, never one, see them out in the wild. Ones that I'm not related to, um, maybe, maybe one a month. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that seems like a reasonable amount, right? Yeah, it, it's the right dosage. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so Matt has sent out a music demo... Um, but now, and I quote, he's singing the SAT blues. Um, we, we cut to downstairs. His dad works as a janitor for a bank, and the banker is over for dinner at their house, and he's going to conduct his college interview, but as long as he does well in the SATs. Mm -hmm. And then... Ooh, there, there's so many questions about the logistics but also like the geographical location like they clearly have very few sets for this part of the episode so i do love that later when they conduct the interview it's literally in his dining room <laughs> yeah it is they they peel away part of the wall and they're like here's your office now <laughs> um, yeah yeah you'll just work from home like 2020 it was very prescient <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah the dinner devolves into like him kind of fantasizing that everyone's asking him word problems and him kind of going out of control um yeah, it works for like a hot second and then it just goes on for too long but the sight gag of his mom feeding like information and like cram notes into his vacuum head i actually kind of found delightful oh yeah no the again the the imp the impulse behind this scene is very good. Um, mm -hmm. They don't do it right. Um, no. But the, the the very subtle slide into his mom is talking, and then it you, you realize it is a word problem. She's like, if I have six slices of turkey, <laughs> and you give two to Julie, and she chews ten times per minute, how many? And you're just like, oh, I see what's happening here. Yeah. And then it happens, and it happens, and it happens. Yeah. It's, um, it's a good thing that they don't know when to stop. Yeah, although I do like the part where the banker is, whenever um, M Matt says something, the banker says the antonym to what he, the last word that he said. Yes, and he just gets increasingly more irate about it. That's, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I really liked that. Um, we he, This was a dream. He wakes up, and 
the actually the thing that I loved the most about this episode is that in the exteriors of the high school, it's the actual high school that they shot the first Elm Street at. Um, oh, nice. So it it is the real like Springwood High School exterior. I mean, obviously it's a different high school. It's in uh, Torrance, I think. I've been there. It's cool. Okay. Um, it's a beautiful place. Um, but yeah, so he takes the SAT. They start at section four, which doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> but you know, Didn't maybe it was <laughs> maybe it was different in the eighties. Right. Oh, by the way, Joe, um, the SAT is like a full day event. It's like eight hours. Oh, okay. As someone who works in education, it just makes me die a little bit inside when I hear about things like that because that is just the worst way to assess someone's knowledge. Yeah, uh, it's it's really punishing. Um, but yeah, so then he has that interview sequence you were talking about in his dining room mm-hmm. um, where the man's like, sit behind this desk. You can see what you're going to be like during your job. And then he gets a call from someone who's like, you're foreclosing on my house. And then the boss is like, ask him what his SAT scores were. Okay, I fully laughed at that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, that was really good. Because, yeah, like this is the part that blows up um into like exaggerated relief the way that high schoolers feel that the SATs are going to follow them throughout their entire life exactly yeah um so Julie shows up and she brags about her getting a 1520 on her SATs which um admittedly that's worth bragging about oh it is it it's it's a great score um on any test mm-hmm. um, I do love that she thinks that he's going to get perfect because she got 1520 and I was like there has been no indication that he is smarter than you. In fact, everything has suggested he's quite a bit dumber than you. Yeah, he's dumb as a bag of hammers, but she's she's in love. Right. Um, but also, she was driven to Matt's house by a man named Tony, who we've Tony. never met. Um, mm-hmm. And never will again. <laughs> yeah, who, well, at one point, in one scene. Um, but so he's suddenly Matt's rival, and she's like, don't worry about Tony. Um in the end, it's going to be you and me studying together on those cold winter nights. <laughs> um, oh, Julie. Know so, your worth, Julie. Yeah. Um, so his, his the mail truck shows up. He finds out he gets an 800. And as soon as he reads that out loud, his parents, like... Just fully turn their backs on him. Yeah. Julie leaves immediately. And they just lock him out of the house. And it's great. Yeah. I'm, yeah. God, I, I do really like the instincts here. Um... Yeah, cut to later, he's a janitor at the high school. Um, Julie and Tony, and they both have identical ponytails, are visiting Mm -hmm. um, the high school. um, And they see him as a janitor, and it's all very embarrassing. And Mm -hmm. But he has to pick up extra shifts because his dad is in a SAT shame coma, I guess. I guess, yeah. He just never recovered. Yeah, and but now he needs to have the money so they don't foreclose on his house. And his dad, again, they, the this speaks to the limitation of the sets. His dad is in a hospital bed in his house. Mm-hmm. Um, and the banker's <laughs> also there. He's like, look, uh, money was put on this earth to be fruitful and multiply, which was a line I also kind of liked. Ugh. It, it's very icky because especially when you think of the consumer's bent of the 80s, you're like, that's probably what some people really did think. Yeah, I mean, maybe... Pro- maybe still do. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, no, you got to talk to more straight people. You'll learn. Oh, God. Um, but yeah, so we wake up again. Um, he's in the middle of the SAT, but it just ended, so he didn't finish it. Um, so he's horrified, and he runs out of the school after asking the teacher to take it again, and the teacher was like, no way, Jose. 
Um, yeah, survival of the fittest, to which I say, ooh, teacher of the year there. Ugh. I mean, look, the SAT people are super strict, um, but the, literally, this kid was asleep for like six hours. I mean, maybe it was a shorter process in the 80s, but I don't think so. Yeah, um, and is it really like if you fail it once, you have to wait a full year? Like, aren't there multiple instances where you can take it? If you like flunk it, you could do it again? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, if you're a senior, I think you could probably take it twice before it becomes a problem. Right. Like, time-wise, I, I don't know. I'm digging back into my, my memories. Okay. I only took it once because I, I got a great Because score. you're a genius. Yeah, I am a genius. You scored well above 1,600, which means that's an A+. Plus. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so he's he's really worried that he's going to bomb out. And then all of a sudden, a limo pulls up, and a woman with a beautiful, short 80s hairstyle comes out. And she's like, I'm from Splash Records. We got your demo. Come with me. And, yeah. then, and then he does, and it's a happy ending. And that is quite unusual for this show, <laughs> that both characters have a happy ending and don't die miserably. <laughs> But, like, again, so what are we supposed to take from this? So in the first story, Stephen learns via dream that he should conform and become, like, an automaton, even though that was a horrifying process via, like, a bloody machine. And then here it's like, no, you can definitely flunk the SATs and it will fuck up your life unless you magically get a record deal from Slash Records? Splash Records. Oh, is it Splash? Okay. Yes, I just, it's, it's, it's so very 80s. Right. <laughs> I also love that the teacher who told him, like, basically you're fucked, then smiles when he gets in the car with this, like, hot record chick. Yeah, I truly don't know what they wanted from me out of this oh 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 before uh yeah we're back with freddie he's looking at a little dollhouse of a schoolroom. he says a mind is a terrible thing to waste and then he eat the t he eats the head off the teacher doll which is yeah it's fine that doesn't connect to the story we just saw at all no like, look i mean freddie rarely connects to the story of the episodes he's usually like the odd duck out like he does not seem to be watching what we're watching but to be fair, in this episode, were we even watching what we were watching? It's a question for the ages. I will say my favorite part of this little piece is where Robert Englund clearly knocks over the doll when he's meant to grab it, but they don't bother to take a second take, so he just kind of like scrambles for it for a couple of seconds, and you're like, all right, it's kind of novel, I guess. Oh yeah, the, the, the shooting style of all of these is... England has a hard out in 45 seconds. <laughs> Never stop filming. Yeah, either that or they they shot all of the season one intros and outros in one day. And it was like, yeah, we got it. Let's move on to episode 15 and then 16. Oh, yeah. No, it, the amount of time that Robert England spent on this set is less than the amount of time I don't know. Julie was, was dating asleep. Steve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah, um, we're at final thoughts. Was this episode a dream? Was it a nightmare or did it put you to sleep? I said nightmare because I just found it so confusing. And even though there's a couple of really novel moments and some frankly interesting visuals, overall, I was like, I just did not care for this episode very much. I'm actually right there with you. I also allotted it a nightmare. Um, it's just, it's too messy. Like yeah. m 
like a lot of these episodes there's something at the core where you're like oh if you had built off of this it would actually be probably a really fun episode yeah but you just kind of threw a bunch of garbage on it and lit it on fire and then asked me to shoot my principal yeah and tried not to die because we're actually in an enclosed space yeah uh just a mess <laughs> um do you have any was there anything that i missed anything you want to bring up or shall we move forward no i just love this idea that yeah if you flunk the sats it's like a fuck you i'm just gonna go be a musician and have hookers and limos yeah i mean truly there are two paths in life <laughs> <laughs> one leads to janitorial services and one leads to record deals yeah, I really... Just fuck this episode. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Joe, where can everybody find you and your podcasts out on the internet? <laughs> okay, so the easiest way to keep track of me is just to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, and that's at BeStoleMyRemote, and that's the letter B. And you'll be able to see all of the stuff for Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, as well as Horror Queers. But if you're only interested in Horror Queers and less about me, then that's at Horror Queers. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if, you're, if you're like, I like Joe, but I need exactly 50% of him. <laughs> Exactly. You're like, I don't care about young adult literature. That shit's for kids. No, you should, though. Um, Joe and his co-host, Brenna, are extremely smart and well-read. And the, it, is a, it is a must-listen show if you have any, any toe in the water of teen movies or literature or anything. It's really good. This is true. Yes, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I um, will accept your compliment and also <laughs> be... Yeah. No, look, that's what you got to do. Like, f f death to false humility. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so every episode is brought to you by donations from listeners like you. Please help us keep going by donating to the Okra Project. You can donate through the link in the show notes. Take a screenshot of your receipt and send it to w2ptpod at gmail.com or DM it to me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at It's Raining Brens and Instagram at The Burning Clem. Uh, our artwork was created by Henry Hall. If you'd like to support trans artists, and you should, you can send them a commission at henryhall.design. Our theme song is Living in a Dream by Pseudo Echo. Rate and review us, please. Uh, next episode, Joe's gonna be, Joe is going to be rejoining us to talk about Cabin Fever. A jittery airline heir finds himself on a flight to hell. Meanwhile, <laughs> a stewardess goes home with a charming passenger who may be too good to be true. Yeah, see you then, everybody. Bye. Bye.